And so today we're going to talk about that phase of redemption. And in the midst of talking about the phase on redemption, I'm going to do a sidebar class on human suffering. Because human suffering is one of the specific things John Paul II mentions at the end of the Theology of the Body, saying that the Theology of the Body is useful for many other things other than what we've talked about, among them human suffering. And, um, and I'm starting to find that like, we have to have a deeper way of understanding human suffering and engaging human suffering. Because it is precisely human suffering that brings us from that phase of fallen man or distortion into clarity. So that's the plan for today. Tomorrow we'll talk about what life's like in heaven and a little bit on vocations. And then, because we're not going to get through all 129 audiences, the rest, if you want to continue to learn from me, it's all on the Dawson YouTube channel from the last time that I taught. And, uh, but I'm hoping that like what I'm giving you now is giving you a lot of food for your own personal meditation, your own personal growth, and also something that will help us to reach the kids in our classrooms. So we talked about all these things, what it means to be created in God's image, <clears throat> how original sin corrupts God's image, the disintegrity of body and soul, and Christ has come to restore us to an ethos of redemption, not simply an ethic of compliance. <clears throat> right? Judaism was about an ethic of compliance. This is the law, you have to follow the law. If you follow the law, then you're considered just. An ethos of redemption is about loving greatly and living out the image of God in our lives in everything that we do. So we talked about that phase from creation to the fall, from fall to the cross, and now we're moving through the cross into this phase of redemption. So in this idea of an ethos of redemption, remember, an ethos is sort of the rules that govern relationships within community, community and society. So the ethos of redemption involves this moving from, I have turning away to experiencing a genuine love. All right, so this movement from a life ruled by constraint to a life of freedom. All right, this movement from constraint to freedom. So constraints... To freedom. Okay, when we talk about constraint, constraint means I do something because I have to do it. Right? I have to do it. In freedom, I do something because I want to do it. So, very basically, within a marriage, there can be the person who follows the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, out of constraint. Which would basically mean that this person wants to commit adultery, but he doesn't do it because if he does it, it's going to have all these negative consequences for his life. Every woman wants to be married to that guy. No. Right? Freedom means <coughs> that I... I'm faithful to my spouse because I love her. She's the center of my life. 
She's the only thing worth living for in my life. Right? Can Living in the ethos of redemption means we live in an ethos of freedom. We live in an ethos of freedom. In the world of constraint, we're motivated by fear. In an ethos of freedom, we're motivated by love. Somewhere in here, people are motivated by duty. So we want to proclaim a gospel and a way of life that's always motivated by love. And not simply motivated by fear. Now which is easier, to try to motivate people by fear or motivate them by love? Fear is easier. It's easier. It's easier to say to somebody, don't do that, you'll go to hell than to explain to them the dignity of their person, that they have value in the eyes of God, that they are a beloved son, that they are a beloved daughter, and because of that, they should be moved by the love of God to act in a way that reveals God to the world. It's easier to just say, don't do that, you'll go to hell. We live in a society, however, that no longer is motivated by fear. For the most part, people aren't motivated by fear. Young people aren't motivated by fear. They don't grow up in a world where boundaries are safe and things like that. They pretty much are motivated by... They can be motivated by love. But fear is not the path. And fear is not the most beautiful presentation to make either. Another sort of phrase we can use is we're moving from eros to an ethos. Okay, and here eros, we're going to talk about what eros means. All right, eros is most often associated with erotic love. Oftentimes, eros is associated with the sinful aspects of human relationships. All right, but it really means something more than that, and so we'll. Review. Erotic phenomena are those mutual actions and ways of behaving through which a man and woman approach each other and unite so as to be one flesh. Alright, so eros is the love that moves us. Alright, it's the love that moves us. And there can be eros as lust. But there also is the eros of the original unity of man and woman. Okay, within the original unity of man and woman, eros is active. And where eros and that ethos of redemption meet in the human heart, they bear fruit in purity. Right? Purity of heart does not mean complete and utter, like, uh, I don't have relationships. It means that we have relationships that are ordered according to the image of God in our lives. And so in the theological tradition, eros and agape are, we have eros and agape. 
Right? Eros is considered to be something called ascending love. Agape is descending love. So, in Platonic philosophy, right, Eros is the thing that always drives us to the higher principle. Right? It drives us to the higher principle. And so that's the sense in which it's called ascending love because it drives us to the higher principle. For Plato, you have like the forms that kind of exist out here and they're the absolutes and everything sort of participates in the absolute form. And so the idea of Eros is that we're driven to and attracted to that absolute form and so it's ascending. Right? Eros also can be this sort of search for completion within me. Right, the search for completion within me. And so I'm searching for the thing that will make me complete or whole. So again, for Plato, pleasure is always the filling of a void or when I fill up what's missing in me. So Plato will talk about how like, pleasure is experienced when we quench our thirst, when we eat food, when we're hungry. And the proportion of pleasure right, is equal to the proportion of what's missing to what fulfills it. Right, so when I was in ranger school and we ate two meals a day for 72 days and got three hours of sleep, and I got that amazing ham omelet meal ready to eat, that was prepared 10 years ago. It tasted amazing. I thought it was amazing. It tasted so good because I was starving. So the pleasure of eating it was magnified by the void that I had in my life. Okay, so for Plato, pleasure is always like I'm missing something and I need it in order to fulfill me. It fits with that anthropology that we talked about yesterday where every human, the human person was split in half and you seek your other half in order to fulfill yourself or complete yourself. Right? So agape is this descending love and so we experience it as something that we receive as a gift or it's a pure gift. So there's an author named Anders Nygren who wrote a book called Eros and Agape. And he traces the entire history of the tradition on Eros and Agape. Just really pretty interesting. And his premise is that Eros and Agape are always two completely separate things. Right? They're always two completely separate things. That there's either Eros or Agape. Agape is like New Testament love. God descends to become man. Right? Eros is this sort of human love where we're seeking things to fill ourselves. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he talks about, in De Diligendo Deo, he talks about this sort of, I love myself for my own sake. Love, I'm just going to put love self for me. And then he talks about, I love... God for me, for my own sake, 
love God for God's sake. And then finally, I don't even love myself except for God's sake. Love self only for God's sake. And so he talks about these stages of love. You know, if I flip that upside down, I'd be like climbing a ladder. Right? I love myself for my own sake. Then it moved to love for God, but I really love him for my own sake because I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Love of God for his own sake. And then finally, that complete self-denial where I only love myself for the sake of God. And then Pope Benedict, when he talks about Eros and Agape, he says that Eros can be the starting point to continually transform itself into Agape. Right? You can transform itself into Agape. Because in human relationships, this is sort of like, it would be just, I only love myself, I love the other person, but I really love them for my own sake. I love the other person for their own sake, and then I love the other person for God's sake. And Pope Benedict in Deus Caritas Est, he says that like in a human relationship, right, like that can be transformed. Right? It can be transformed. And it's called to be transformed. So a man falls in love with a woman because he just thinks she's hot. And he just loves her for his own sake. And then, and it might start off completely selfish. But as he spends time with her and he gets to know her and he starts to see her value, that eros can be continually turned into agape. Right? It can be continually turned into agape. And it's important for us to keep this in mind when we're talking about things, especially in society and culture, or when we're talking to people on the street, or we're talking to a family member. Because I don't know where we get the statistics that we get, but we throw them around like we're experts in sociology sometimes. When we say things like, if you do X, Y, Z, you will divorce-proof your marriage. I don't really know about that. You know, even the NFP statistics are always like, 99% of people who practice NFP faithfully don't get divorced. Well, there's also a third factor there. Like, 99% of people who practice NFP faithfully are afraid of not practicing NFP because it's a mortal sin, and they'll go to hell, and that also applies to divorce. So, that exists there. Or when we say things like, well, you met in a nightclub, and you didn't meet in the chapel, and so your marriage is doomed. This is not true. I have a friend who went to a nightclub. He met a girl. Next morning, they woke up together, had never met each other before. And basically, they looked at each other and said, I'm going to marry you. And we think, oh my gosh, doomed. Then they are like, they have an amazing marriage. 20 years later, they're still married. They have four kids, little girls. And he is one of the most self-sacrificing dads that I know. He posted this thing on Facebook. It was like, the best day as a dad ever. And this was his day. They took the kids to a campground, drove all day, you know, packed the van, drove them all day, got there late at night, put up their tents, got all the kids down, finally going to settle down, and one kid got sick in the tent, which caused a train reaction of sickness. 
know, meanwhile, on the way to the campground, a tree fell over. They had to move out of the way. Finally got there late. You know, the kids are throwing up on each other. You know, so he had to like go in there, clean it all up, pack up the van at three in the morning, and drive back home. <laughs> Best day to be a dad ever. You know, and this is the same guy who just saw a girl in a nightclub, was attracted to her, and they started off there, and they got married civilly because she was getting deployed, and then they got married in the church later, and like that's where they are. And as I look at his life from a distance, I just can see that, how Eros is transformed into agape. Right? And we're called to conversion. So in the midst of what we when we throw statistics around and things like that. Now, understand that I'm not saying I think that is the ideal path because I don't think it's the ideal path. But I am saying that our Lord can enter into anybody's path at any time and transform it. That's the gospel that we preach because we live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a post-Christian culture. Most people don't know that there's another possible way to live. And so while we're advising our young people, don't do that because it goes bad, we need to do that. But when we're talking to somebody who's already lived that way, you know, our Lord can enter into your life and transform it. And, And we also can get in trouble because when we throw those statistics around like that, they aren't always, I don't know if they stand up. I don't know if they stand up academically. Because there are correlating factors, especially when we're looking at a group of really faithful people already. You know, like we might say, everyone who goes through RCIA every single year at their parish, like, is bound to be more engaged in the church. Well, of course they are. But it doesn't mean that if you just simply go to RCIA every year, then you're going to be there. Or if you do this specific program, then everything will be better. You know, it's kind of like, I know a lot of you are Matthew Kelly fans, but when he writes in the four signs of the dynamic Catholic, like just do these four things and you'll be a dynamic Catholic, and none of them is develop a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not really sure. You know, and I asked Matthew when he was here, I said, how much did you look at the family of the person when you did your study? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, so if somebody grows up in a family where the parents are engaged, are they more likely to be engaged when they grow up? We didn't really look at that. And from my own experience, that is the most clear indicator and those of us who teach know that because you, when you look at your classroom of kids and you look at what they do after they graduate from Pius, for the most part, the kids who stay in the church and when they leave are the ones from families that are going to Mass every Sunday, they pray together, they're involved in the church, etc. You know, sometimes our retreat programs do a great job of entering into that and helping a kid have a transformation, but I don't... I see very often the kid whose parents don't go to Mass, who goes to Catholic schools, that just abandons the faith after high school. So, like, the family as a whole is very important. So that's why we're kind of focusing so much on sonship and daughterhood. So the erotic and the ethical don't differ from each other, but they're called to meet in the human heart. 
Okay, being drawn to another person and then being formed by that ethos of redemption, like that is that transformation from Eros to Agape, happens within the human heart. And so Eros must be redeemed, transformed, and sanctified, but never snuffed out. Okay, it must be redeemed, transformed, and sanctified, but never snuffed out. Though we don't believe that erotic love is bad. Okay, we don't even believe that selfish love is bad. It just needs to be redeemed, transformed, sanctified into something greater. Through purification, the erotic becomes true, good, and beautiful. Okay, as we're purified, it becomes true, good, and beautiful. Right? It's the starting point that leads us to something. So again, some of our retreat programs and things like that, sometimes they're criticized for undue reason. So, like... Like tech, how many of you are familiar with tech? How many of you have ever heard somebody say, well, that's just about giving them an emotional high and, you know, it's not real faith. It's just about, you know, they just want to go get a big, like, warm fuzzy from Jesus. How many of you have ever heard somebody criticize it like that, right? Okay, so, but, like, there is a starting point there. And it should lead them somewhere. Now, is there a problem with the person whose spirituality never develops beyond tech and they keep trying to go back to tech over and over and over again? Well, yeah, it's like a person who falls in love with a woman and they keep trying to recreate the first moment that they met. Like, they're trying to have the first date every single time and it doesn't work in relationships. But it's supposed to lead them somewhere. And that first encounter of love is... Oftentimes, a selfish encounter. Like, do we say the woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years was just selfish when she reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment? We usually don't criticize her like that. But once she touches the hem of his garment because she just wants to be healed and she gets healed, then she becomes his disciple. And our relationship with God starts from receiving his mercy. It starts from that idea of I'm missing something in my life and I need something. I need Jesus in my life. And so so a lot of times, I don't know where it comes into our own cultural ethos, but a lot of people think it's very selfish for them to pray for their own needs. Like, I ask people, are you praying that God will help you with this? Well, I pray, but I pray for other people. I don't pray for myself. Because God wants me to pray for others, not myself. I don't want to be selfish. But if we're not praying for ourselves, then like, what's the point of our prayer? Our prayer is about receiving the love of God in our lives so it can bear fruit in the world and the lives of others. And it's not selfish. It's about entrusting my life to our Lord and really surrendering our life to our Lord. Surrendering our life to our Lord is not a selfish act. It's really hard. 
because it's really saying you have total access to my life and there's no part of myself that I'm keeping for myself. I'm inviting you into my life with me. You know, and that's a very personal prayer about my own needs, yet it's an act of surrender and so therefore not an act of selfishness. Now, I would argue that the idea that I pray for all these other people but I don't give Jesus access to my life there might be something selfish there. John Paul II says, like a guardian who watches over a hidden spring, we are called to discern the deep impulses of our hearts. Right? A guardian who watches over a hidden spring from the Song of Songs. And so we're called to discern the impulses of our hearts. You know, to pay attention to the movements of our heart. To recognize the movements of love in our lives. Our goal is to draw forth what is fitting for the dignity of the gift and the communion of persons. It doesn't stifle eros, but affords a mature spontaneity and noble gratification. Okay, we're called to discern the deep impulses of our hearts. So, some of those impulses of our hearts are experienced through the emotions. And sometimes we also think emotions are bad. Like, emotions are bad. Emotions don't matter. Your feelings don't matter. Reason is good. But God made us with emotions. He made us with an affectivity. He made us so that we can fall in love. He made us so that we cry when people leave us. Those are all emotional experiences. And... Like in Ignatian prayer, the emotions play a great role in discernment of spirits. You know, what is my desire? And so the way we talk about emotions too, discerning the deep impulses of our hearts means that there's a relationship between reason and emotions. Okay, we can say the reason and the passions and our affect. I'm going to put affect down here. It's basically the same. Right, so one image that is used, I think, in Aristotle is the reason is like a chariot driver and the passions and the emotions are two horses. Right, so reason's job is to guide them. But if reason tries to control them, they will rebel against reason. So the relationship between the intellect and the emotions is not a dictatorship. The relationship is one where reason has to listen to them and then discern which way do I need to go. And that's what it means to discern the deep impulses of our hearts. To make right decisions. So in the book that I promote, that's an anti-pornography book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. Some people don't like it because of the title. It actually, what it's doing is it's teaching kids to let their reason govern their emotions. Because it talks about your thinking brain and your feeling brain. 
And it basically walks them through this idea that your feeling brain wants something and then your thinking brain has to step in and say, okay, is this actually good for me or not? And is there anything I need to watch out for as I go to get it? They use the example of an ice cream truck. Like there's an ice cream truck coming, kid wants ice cream, feeling brain wants ice cream, and then thinking brain has to say, stop, look both ways before you cross the street, make sure you don't get hit by a car, and then go get ice cream. Okay, to answer that deep impulse of the heart. It's not like a super profound impulse of the heart, but wanting ice cream sometimes is an impulse of the heart. <laughs> okay, the same thing applies with our own human relationships and the way that we interact with other people. Right? Because like this happens all the time. Like People fall in love with their secretaries or things like that. It happens because when two people are in close proximity, they work together a long time, they develop a close bond and a relationship, and you might have feelings for the other person. Right? Like A husband might start to develop feelings for another woman because he's in close proximity to her all the time. And he has to discern that. Like, okay, I'm feeling like I'm really attracted to this person right now. And then his reason is to step in and say, what does that mean? Like, it probably means that there's something that's off in my relationship with my wife and I'm vulnerable to this right now. And I know that if I follow my emotions, it's going to be really bad for me. But I need to answer that deep impulse of the heart. So the other, another explanation for those feelings is that I haven't been spending enough time with my own spouse and I'm going to sort of redouble my efforts in building up our marriage. So feelings about one person can be discerned and you can come to the conclusion that you really need to build your relationship with another person. And you're still answering your emotions. Right? Your emotions are a signal about something. You're answering your emotions, but you're answering your emotions in a way that will lead you to the final end that you're going towards, which is heaven. So when we talk about impure thoughts as well, <clears throat> like an impure thought, because of the way that our brains are structured. And I'm going to go back to what I talked about attachment the other day. Okay, because this is also about discerning the deep impulses of our heart. So when we talked about attachment the other day, I talked about how like in your brain you have this primitive brain that's in charge of your emotional regulation. And then when you get in distress, you send out a distress call. Usually mom comes. And when that happens on a regular basis, you develop a secure attachment. So when somebody has an insecure attachment, what happens? Like, uh, nobody's really here for me, but they're in stress all the time. They're in distress. And so they might discover that something besides a person helps their emotional distress, like alcohol, drugs, pornography. Sometimes it could just be like impure thoughts. Because all of these things release a chemical in the brain which alleviate stress. So what happens is like then I start to develop this neural pathway like I'm walking in the woods from emotional distress to alcohol, drugs, or pornography and pure thoughts. 
And that becomes automatic. So just like the kid who falls down, scrapes his knee, and he says, I want my mom, the automatic response to stress becomes, I want a drink, I want to get high, I'm having an impure thought right now. And these things have no moral value. They just are an automatic response of the brain. So this is not a temptation. This is simply the brain signaling to you that you're in emotional distress. That's all it is. Especially with a person who might have been exposed to impurity at a young age. They were not in control of that happening. It happened, and so their brain learned that all these chemicals got released, and their brain automatically brings those thoughts into the imagination when they're in distress, because the two get paired. So, having an impure thought is morally neutral. Okay. The temptation comes in when the person says something like, because I'm having this thought, I'm a bad person. That's a temptation. Because I'm having this thought, I'm a bad person. Because I'm having this thought, God can't possibly love me. Because I'm having this thought, I'm horrible because I should know better than to have this thought. If you eat that fruit, you will not die. God doesn't really love you. Right? The temptation is always a lie. Impure thoughts in and of themselves are morally neutral. The temptation is a lie. And then you start to focus on it. And then when you choose it, and you're choosing it overtly, of course, then you're giving consent to it. But for our young people, oftentimes, impure thoughts are simply a signal to them that they're in emotional distress. So what is somebody to do? They say... Having an impure thought right now, that means I'm in emotional distress and I need to go talk to a friend. Or I say, Jesus, you're welcome into my imagination right now. Right? Why do we say, Jesus, you're welcome into my imagination right now? Because Jesus is a person who can respond to us when we're in some kind of distress. The Lord is my refuge. And you, O Lord, take refuge. Okay, in some way, like this is very important to teach, I think, especially to high school kids, but more and more to junior high kids and as they get younger, because oftentimes, like, all they're doing is they're having a memory of something and it's coming into their mind and they think the devil's walking around, like, going, hey, look at this image, look at this image, look at this image. The devil's not doing that. It's just their brain's doing that because their brain learned that. It's like when somebody has a trauma and it comes up in their mind over and over and over again. Okay, it just comes into their head. Like I can't stop thinking about like the day my dad died for somebody. It's like a trauma that keeps coming up over and over and over in our head because our brain's trying to figure it out. Okay, for our young people who are exposed to impurity at a young age, it is a trauma. Okay, it is a trauma. They're not supposed to see it. It's confusing for them. They have no place to go with it. They have nothing, no way to process it. It is a trauma. Okay, it is a trauma much like some kind of physical form of sexual abuse. It has the same effect on them neurologically. And so it's going to come up over and over and over again. And they think it's morally neutral because they saw it on a screen. So they don't really think of it as some kind of violation, but it comes up over and over and over again, they can't get it out of their head. 
the best way to get it out of their head is that they go and talk to their parents about it, which is why, again, I'm such an advocate and spend so much time trying to teach parents how to be available to talk to their kids about these things so that they can open up the space for the kid to know that they can trust them about everything. Right? Oftentimes, in our culture, because we don't have a healthy way of talking about human relationships, kids can trust their parents with everything in the world except for anything that has to do with sex and sexuality. Lots of the 20-year-olds I talk to. My dad is amazing. My dad is the greatest. That My dad is St. Joseph. So do you talk to your dad about the fact that you struggle with this? Oh, no way. Why? He just wouldn't understand. So my dad's St. Joseph, but he wouldn't understand that I have a problem with the internet. And there's an unwillingness to acknowledge, like, well, maybe my dad should be more trustworthy in that area. Or open up the space. Open up the space to talk about it. Okay, so discerning the deepest impulses of the heart, right, using our reason to discern the movements of our heart, right, it applies in all those ways in a really practical way. Okay, I'm having this feeling about somebody, I have to discern what does this mean. Or I'm having, like, whatever it is. I have to discern what does this mean and then choose an action that will respond to it and lead me in the right direction. Okay, if we stuff it, it doesn't work. If we stuff it, it just rebels on us. It comes back to us. And then we start getting angry at people for no reason. This is when couples have blowout fights because the dishes are on the wrong side of the sink. <laughs> it happens. Or when assistant pastors blow up at their pastor for something minor because it's triggering issues that they had with their dad when they were growing up. Or when colleagues do the same thing. Or when people do it with their boss. You know, all those kind of repeated patterns. Like, I had a repeated pattern in my life of I had the belief that my immediate superior didn't really care about people and I had to care about people extra hard because if I didn't, then they wouldn't be cared for because my immediate superior didn't care about people. It started when I was a lieutenant in the army. When I was a lieutenant in the army, I thought my company commander was a complete dirtbag slept in all day, whatever, I wanted to go into his tent, rip his ranger tab off his uniform. And, and I had to love my soldiers more because he didn't care about them. And then I got a new boss. And kind of the same thing happened again. And then I left and I went to the seminary and I thought, oh, this will never happen when I'm a priest. When I'm a priest, all priests are going to be loving each other. and We're going to be this great fraternity. We're going to pray together. We're all going to be working for Jesus. It's going to be great. And for the most part, we are. But then I got to my first assignment, and I kind of was like, my pastor doesn't really care about people. Like, I have to care about people. And I would get really kind of... At, back then, I was more sort of idealistic. And so I was like, okay, Jesus is just calling me to suffer more and to give myself more. And then I got to my second assignment, and the same thing happened again. Like, my pastor only cares about administration. He doesn't really care about people. Blah, 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 blah. Then I got my third pastor, who is the complete opposite of my second pastor, My second pastor ate spinach leaves as a snack. (laughs) My third pastor came in and he said, what kind of food do you like? I like everything except spinach. (laughs) And that pretty much sums up the personalities, if you know them. (laughs) But when the third pastor came in, 
I also had this sense that, you know, he liked hanging out with people, but he didn't really care for them pastorally. So it was always in this dynamic. I would call my friends. I'd be, like, feeling mad, like, turning red in the face, so angry. And uh, it wasn't until I went to therapy and started looking at my own family that I realized I grew up in a family where my dad was pretty much absent in the house, and I had to take care of my brothers and sisters. And I felt like I had to be their dad. But I never got angry at my dad. Because he's my dad. He was my only dad. He was my only like blood parent alive. So I wasn't allowed to be angry at him. And every time I got angry at all these other people, I was really angry at my dad. And so I started doing this thing. I was starting to get angry at somebody in that situation. And then I would say to myself, wait, you're just angry at your dad. Peace. Good all dissipate. When I signed it to the right thing. So my emotion was telling me something and I was misinterpreting it for all that time until I finally had the context to be able to interpret it properly and it gave me more peace. And that happens in all of our lives. Like We all have things like that. Some of them are big and some of them are little. Um, But we all have things like that. All right. Remember, these are my high school slides, so I always put these, like, quirky things. It's like reading a Scott Hahn book. All right. (laughs) Then he did the Mariah Carey. Climbing Mount Mariah. Okay. So eroticism is like eros that burns and consumes somebody. Okay? Right? Sinful eros is eros that burns and consumes somebody. Redeemed eros would be like the burning bush on Mount Sinai that burns but doesn't consume. Right? It burns but doesn't consume. It doesn't consume the person. It doesn't consume the other. So are Christ's words condemning or liberating when he says, he who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart? They're spoken in the perspective of the redemption of the body. So some people might think that's condemning when he says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And all these people are like, oh, you, you're so judgmental. You think I'm such a sinner. sinner. Like, I'm a horrible person because I can't possibly look at somebody without looking at them with lust. But they're spoken in the perspective of the redemption of the body. The perspective of the whole gospel, the whole teaching, the whole mission of Christ. The perspective of the fact that we were created for good then this distortion entered the world, and now we're called to redemption. And so they do indeed liberate us. Right? And Mary Healy and men and women are from Eden. She uses the example of a quadriplegic. If Jesus goes up to them and says, get out of your chair and walk, they would get out of their chair and walk. They wouldn't sit there and say, are you making fun of me? Are you kidding me? They would just get out of their chair and walk because what Christ wills, Christ enables. And Christ's word gives us the power to do what he asks of us. So when he calls us to purity of heart, he enables us to be pure of heart. Sometimes that happens over a long period of time, though. Our conversions can take a long time. We talked about how the RCI is supposed to be three years. But then that continuing conversion and growth and sanctity can take place over decades. So 
So it's grace that enables. And so I use this sort of schema, my schema of the arrows and all of this stuff. It's just a schema that works for every relationship. Right? So when we talk about the relationship between Christ and, his, and the church, like, all grace flows from the cross. Right? All grace flows from the cross. The cross is the source of all grace in our lives. The cross is the source of that gift that Christ bestows on the church. And the church is called to respond in receptivity, or I would change receptivity to entrusting. Okay, that's my finger, sorry. All right, I would change it to entrusting ourselves to Him. Okay, because receptivity is too hard to like wrap our heads around, and receptivity also oftentimes sounds too passive. And when we say active receptivity, it's like, what are you talking about? Right? But the formulation of Pope Benedict and Pope Francis and Lumen Fide is to entrust myself to, which is an action that is also receptive. It is a receptive action. It's to recognize this person is trustworthy. I'm going to put my hands in his hands. I'm going to put my life in his hands. And I know that he's going to take care of me. Okay, so because our Lord has died on the cross, I know I can entrust my life to him. That's what the cross says to us. The cross says to us that because that God is faithful, right? that God is trustworthy, that's what the crucifix says. And that's the gospel that we need to proclaim as well, that the cross is trustworthy. When we talk about the cross with a pagan, we would want to say to them, look, while you were still a pagan, Jesus died for you. St. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when, that, when I look there and I see that, I say... Wow, like every moment in my life where I've ever turned away, where I've ever been selfish, where I have ever committed any kind of sins, our Lord was present to that moment and He offered His life to heal me from that. And I experience it as mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We experience that as mercy. When we look at the crucifix as somebody who's been baptized a Catholic and brought up in the church, all we see is the fact that we never did what we were supposed to do. And there's some obstacle to God's mercy in that. And this is one of my kind of things that I hammer all the time because I've just I see it all the time is that when we're a cradle Catholic the story of the Holy Spirit in our life is sort of like, well, I was a baby and I received the fullness of the Holy Spirit and I couldn't sin and so I had the fullness of the Holy Spirit and it's just been leaking out ever since then. (laughs) Because once I reached the age of reason, I could sin and then I sin and then the Holy Spirit just keeps leaking out and I hope there's something left by the time I die. Because when we look at the cross, we don't see it as while I was a sinner, Christ died for me, we start to see it as, oh my gosh, I knew better and I just helped to hammer the nails into his hands. And 
And so when our Lord looks at me, he doesn't look at me with love. He looks at me with, I can't believe you're hurting me. And that's not the gospel. You know, every time we go to confession, John Paul II says, it stirs the waters of baptism. It renews our baptism. We start over again. We start over again from Christ's mercy. And so when we go to confession, we're starting over again from Christ's mercy. Which means that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And our experience of Jesus is, even when we're stubborn and we're obstinate and we keep struggling and we're falling and struggling and falling and struggling and falling, he consistently just looks at us with love. He consistently speaks love into our lives. And when he consistently speaks love into our lives, eventually we sort of wake up and realize, ah, this is true. This is true. You know, I have a very dear family member and she, from a young age, developed the core belief that she was unlovable. And so she spent most of her life proving that she was unlovable. And so I would go home on breaks and when I first went to the seminary, I was pretty rigid and I was like the gospel of compliance and I was, you know, I'd go home and say, look, you're doing all this stuff wrong. If you just do this, then you'll be happy. Go do it. That worked. No, it didn't work. It just developed a lot of animosity between us. And so eventually I changed tactics and I started to realize that her obstinance was actually just a different language that she spoke. So I call it like, I, don't, I won't tell you what I call it, but it's like a different language, like speaking Chinese. So in her language, if she says to me a lot of curse words, you... What she's really trying to say is, I'm feeling vulnerable right now, and I feel like it might be true that you love me, and that makes me feel really uncomfortable, because it's totally different from the way I see myself, and I don't want to change that. So I'm just going to say this to verify the fact that I'm actually unlovable. And when I started to see that, then I could listen to her say, F you. And just be able to respond, I love you, and I'm always going to be here, and when you're ready, I'm here. And so that went on for a couple of years, and then I went home on a break, and, uh, and we started. We went out to dinner, and we had this like, great talk, and it was all going well, and then dropped her off at home, and I went to the church where I was staying, and then she created all this chaos. And, uh, and we had this like fight. And, uh, and everybody in the family was like, I can't believe you're so irresponsible. You went out with her and then dropped. I was like, I didn't do anything. Stop. It's okay. And the next day she goes, well, I'm not coming canoeing. I was like, why not? You're coming canoeing. It's okay. And just kept trying to speak that language of love to her. And then like the last straw came when um, she talked to me on the phone one week. I'm going to break up with this guy because he's not good for me. That's a good idea. Good. Do it. Two weeks later, I was checking my Facebook profile and I saw her wedding pictures at the courthouse. And she didn't tell anybody she was getting married. So we find out she got married on Facebook. And so the family's up in uproar, you know, like, I can't believe you did this. You're so disrespectful. And so I kind of pulled out my computer and I typed in, I was hurt that you didn't tell me that you were getting married because I love you. And I thought that we were getting closer. And I just want you to know that I'm here and I support you. And 
I miss talking to you. Three minutes later, like my Skype lit up. She was calling. We talked on the phone. And she's been my closest family member ever since then. So I don't, I'm not saying it's like a magic formula for everybody. But like in this case, there was this conversion that happened because of repeatedly like trying to speak love into her life. And eventually she realized that I didn't hate her, that I did love her. And that's what our Lord tries to do in our lives. That's what our Lord wants to do in our lives. Our Lord wants to continually speak love into our lives when we don't think it's possible. And our Lord wants to speak love into our lives until we change the way we see ourselves. So the look of love that the adulterous woman sees on Jesus' face, that's the experience he wants us all to have. And the cross should always be a reminder to us of that. Right, that any sin we've committed in our life, Jesus was cognizant of in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he went to the cross and he died for us. You know, and the other aspect of the cross is that Jesus died for every sin that was ever committed by every person in the history of man, which means he suffered the consequence of all the sin that was committed against us. And if he suffered the consequence of every sin ever committed against me, that means when I felt alone or like I didn't belong or abandoned when I was a kid, he felt alone like he didn't belong or abandoned. When I felt like it was impossible for people to understand me and unlovable, he felt like it's possible for people to understand me and unlovable. Because the cross is a place of compassion. And he gave his life so that he could speak God's love into those points in our life, into that distortion in our life, so that he can supply for us everything that we've been missing. And he can restore us as his sons and daughters. And we're going to take a break.